Well, if you please turn your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 32 to 37 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 912. Acts 4, 32 to 37. So just give me a, a reminder of the context of where we are. The book of Acts tells the story of the early church. So just prior to his ascension into heaven, the resurrected Jesus, he gives a charge to his disciples. He gives them their mission, their commission. And this charge is seen in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We've looked at Acts 1, 8 multiple times. This is actually the theme verse of the entire book of Acts. And Acts 1, 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the disciples did receive power. The Holy Spirit did come upon them at Pentecost. And when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, they were given this miraculous ability to speak in other languages, other tongues that they did not know. But there were people in Jerusalem who did know this. This was their native language. And when they heard the disciples speaking about Jesus in their native language, this got their attention. They wanted to know how they did it. They wanted to know what it meant. And then Peter, in chapter 2, he gives them the first Christian sermon. He tells them what it meant. He tells them it was because of Jesus. It's about Jesus. At the end of of chapter 2, Luke tells us about the fellowship and and the unity that we saw among the disciples that was experienced in the early church. And this is the same unity that we'll see in today's reading. Then in chapter 3, this starts with Peter and John going to the temple, going to worship, going to pray. And there they encounter a man who was born lame. He was not able to work, to, to, to walk. And this man... Is, is begging. He's asking for alms. He's asking for money. And Peter looks at him. He says, I don't have any money, but I can give you something even better. And he heals him in the name of Jesus. By the power of Jesus, he heals him. Again, in this miraculous healing, he gets the attention of all the people in the temple. And just like the miraculous speaking in tongues got the attention. And then Peter explains what it meant. It's because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. And the crowd is amazed. And we're told that thousands of people come to Christ at this point. But not only did this healing, this message get the attention of these crowds, it also got the attention of the Jewish leaders. And where the crowds reacted by coming to faith in Jesus, the Jewish leaders reacted with rage. They were angry. And they arrested Peter and John. They threw him in jail. They threatened and they charged him not to speak in the name of Jesus. But Peter says to them, we have no choice. He says, are we to listen to God or are we to listen to you? And he says, we cannot but speak about what we have seen Jesus do. And the only reason Peter and John were were let go or released is because the Jewish leaders feared the crowds who believed the miracles. And the disciples then had just made some very powerful enemies that day. And they were in real danger. And they were justifiably filled with much fear. And last week we looked at the the prayer that they prayed. And we saw how the, the content of this prayer and the structure of this prayer was an antidote to the fear that they had. In the last verse that we looked at last week in verse 31... Luke tells that the place that they were gathered, it was shaken, and that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And it was like a second Pentecost. In fact, you'll notice some of the same similarities between what we read today and what we saw in chapter 2 after Pentecost. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the immediate impact of them being filled with the Holy Spirit, what this meant, and what it had on the church, and specifically look at the characteristics of a spirit-filled Christian, a Christian who is controlled by the Holy Spirit. So Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. Hear now the word of the Lord. 
Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had deed. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray. Father, we do, as always, need your spirit to help us to understand your word. I need your spirit to proclaim your word, to preach your word accurately. And Father, I pray that we will hear from you, that we will see you. But Father, I pray that we will also be changed. I pray that what we read about on these disciples in this early church will be true of us, that you will conform us to the way they were, that you will remove the fear and, and, and the unbelief and the pride and the selfishness and all the things that hold us back from following you to be completely sold out to you and, and completely controlled by your spirit. I pray, Father, that you will be seen and you will be glorified this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does it mean to be a spirit-filled Christian? Spirit-filled Christian. I mean, we use this, this word a lot, but what, what does it mean? Is it, is it a super-Christian? Is, is it someone who is, is super-spiritual, always praying, always witnessing, always talking about Jesus? Or maybe it's someone who, who displays some miraculous gifts, people who, can, who have the gift of healing or the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy. Or is it someone maybe who is who's in vocational ministry, someone who's in seminary or someone who's on the mission field or called to be a pastor? Is this what it means to be a spirit-filled Christian? No. A spirit-filled Christian is simply a Christian. It's repetitive. All Christians, if you are born again, you are a spirit-filled Christian. And the characteristics that we see in this passage, they're not just for pastors, they're not just for missionaries, they're not just for the super-Christians. This is what should be normative of every single Christian. And what this means is what I just read in this passage. This is not some far-off goal that few of us can ever achieve, but it's what we should see regularly in our lives. And if we don't see this, it should get our attention. The marks that we see in this passage, they should characterize the lives of Christians. Now, why don't they? I know they don't characterize my life. Can you imagine the struggle I went through last week as I was trying to write this sermon about characteristics of the, that should be normative in the Christian? I don't even see them in myself. Can you imagine the, the conviction I felt? I, I think there's no wonder I struggle so much writing this, this sermon. But why don't we see this? Why do so few of us display the qualities in this passage? And it's because even though all Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit, all Christians are not controlled by the Holy Spirit. Actually, few Christians are controlled by the Holy Spirit. So why is this? Why are we not controlled by the Holy Spirit? Why are we not sold out to the Holy Spirit and, and, and to, to follow him? It's because we're at war. We're at war. As Christians, we are in a battle. Scripture tells us that we have adversaries, three adversaries, and they are the world, the flesh, and the devil. There is a real devil. There are real spiritual forces that hate God and they hate us as made in God's image. And they seek to confuse us, to deceive us, to harass us. 
into failing to use the power that we have, failing to live by the spiritual power that all Christians have. And these spiritual forces, they control the outlook. They control the opinions of this fallen world system which opposes God. And the world denies the reality of God. The world preaches that us as men, as, as human beings, we are the measure of all things. There is no one to whom we are accountable. That's what the world teaches. We are sovereign. We define our own reality. And as formidable as the world is, as formidable as the devil are, I don't even think that's the, the, the most dangerous. Our most dangerous enemy, I believe, is our own flesh. That's because the, the Christian life is not only an external battle. It's not only against the world and, and the, the demons. It's also an internal battle as well. It's a battle with our own flesh. A flesh that, that opposes God every bit as much as the world does. Every bit as much as the devil does. And in some sense, in some sense it's easier for the unbeliever. It's easier for us before we were converted. Yes, we were under the guilt. Yes, we were under judgment. Yes, we were at enmity with God. But at least we didn't have this internal conflict. At least we were all going the same direction. The world, the flesh, the devil was all going in. We didn't have this internal conflict. But as Christians, all Christians have this internal conflict. Even the Apostle Paul faced this internal battle. Listen to these words from Paul from Romans chapter 7. Paul, probably the greatest Christian that's ever lived. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He goes on to say, so I find a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is our battle. This is the battle of every Christian. A battle, really, that we will fight for the rest of our lives. That's the bad news. But the good news is it's a battle which we can win. It's a battle which we will win. It's a battle which we will need to strive to make progress every day. Every day we will have to to put to death the flesh. Every day we will have to seek to live by the Spirit. My friends, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. That is the reality. But we must daily surrender control of our lives to Him. So this passage that we look at today, this describes what a Holy Spirit-controlled life looks like. And we're going to see two characteristics and one example. So that's kind of our outline, two characteristics and one example. And we're going to go verse by verse looking at these characteristics. And we're going to ask, how can I surrender my life to the Holy Spirit? How can I better have these characteristics describe me, describe my life? So the first characteristic we see in this passage is a unity. A unity that transcends worldly concerns. A unity that transcends worldly concerns. We see this starting in verse 32. He says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And I love the way Luke describes this unity. He said they were of one heart and soul. This is a, a deep unity at the, at the core 
of their being. Often we have unity in this world, but, it, but it's superficial. It's often based on, on circumstances. You know, we, we go to the same school, we work at the same company, we're neighbors, or even, even family members. That unity is first on, based on, on circumstances. Or maybe it's based on interests. Maybe we, we, worship, we, we are fans of the same sports team or have same hobbies or same vocational field. But the unity we see here, unity described here in the disciples, this is much deeper. It's a unity of heart and soul. It's a, a unity at the core of their being. It's an emotional and temporal unity, which is represented by heart. It's a spiritual and eternal unity represented by soul. My question is, do we see this type of unity? Even, even among Christians, even in the church, do we see this type of unity? Do we want to have this kind of unity? And what's preventing us? What's preventing us from having the type of unity that we read about in the early church? Well, I think it's simple. It's our pride. It's our ego. It's our self-centeredness. See, as, fall, as fallen creatures, we are addicted to self. That's our primary problem. We are all frustrated narcissists, even as Christians. We're demanding that the world love us, the world honor us. And we feel entitled. We feel entitled to ease. We feel entitled to success, entitled to glory. And if we don't get it, we pout. We lash out at others because we don't think we get what we deserve. But when the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes and, and takes hold of our hearts, like he did with these disciples, then we forget ourselves. See, they forgot their worldly concerns. Their biggest concern was Christ. It was his glory. It was being obedient to his calling, being obedient to be his witnesses in this world. And this was their, their common mission, the mission of all the disciples. And this mission is the common purpose on which the unity of the church is built. See, because God's glory, God's glory was their highest goal. And each person used whatever resource, whatever God had given to him, whatever gifts he had to achieve that goal of glorifying God. Now, we don't experience this kind of unity with other believers because we don't have this common purpose. But if we're honest with ourselves, our highest goal is not God's glory. Our highest goal is our glory, even as Christians. So instead of sharing our resources with others in order to achieve this, this common purpose of God's glory and in, in, in order to, to propagate the gospel, instead what we do is we hoard our resources to be used for ourselves, be used for our own comfort, our own glory. And the disciples understood. They understood that everything they had came from God. Everything we have comes from God. And the greatest privilege that they had was to return these gifts to him, to be used for his glory. The question is, do we feel this way? Do we understand that everything we have comes from God? Do we understand that our greatest privilege, our greatest joy is to be used by God to bring him glory? And the way we spend our money is a great diagnostic tool for our spiritual state. See, if our money is only used for ourselves, for our needs, our wants, our, our comforts, our security, our vanity, then we have a real problem. See, we're acting no differently in the world. We're acting no differently than those who do not know God. Now, we do need to be careful here. We need to understand what this passage is saying and what it's not saying. And I mentioned this when I preached on this on the similar passage in, in chapter 2. See, the having everything in common that we read about related here, this is related to their common purpose, that everything in common for this common purpose of glorifying God, of sharing the gospel, of taking the message of being Christ's witnesses. That was the purpose. So this, mass, this passage in no way was advocating communism. 
This type of sharing, this was not mandatory. The people were voluntarily using their resources, giving up their resources. These resources were not being confiscated by the church. They were not being confiscated by the government. The extraordinary generosity and the unity displayed in this passage, this is not natural. And this is only possible because, because of Christ and its evidence of a life that has been surrendered to Christ. It's controlled by the Holy Spirit. So this is our first characteristic. The second characteristic of the Holy Spirit-controlled life is real spiritual power and grace. Real spiritual power and grace. And we see this in verse 33. It says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So what did this power look like? Well, it looked like what they prayed for the previous week. Remember what they prayed for? They prayed for boldness in their witness, boldness in their testimony about Jesus, boldness about testifying about his resurrection, that he really was raised from the dead, boldness in proclaiming the gospel. And this boldness, this boldness is evidence of the Holy Spirit's control. Why? Because this boldness is not natural. See, our flesh does not naturally want to do this. Our flesh naturally seeks to glorify ourselves, not Christ. It seeks to be praised by the world, not to be praised by God. And just like how we spend our money is a diagnostic test of our faith, so is our testimony about Christ. Do we boldly proclaim Christ? Do we boldly proclaim him in words and deeds? Or are words and deeds indistinguishable from those who do not know Christ, from unbelievers? See, one of the greatest fears of people, especially young people, is the fear of embarrassment. Or, or as my, my children say, the fear of being awkward. And this fear causes us to be quiet about our faith. It causes us to, to not want to stand out, not want to go against the flow. It causes us to, to be silent in the witness that Christ has commanded us to do, to be his witnesses. But this is not. This is not what a spirit-controlled life looks like. The Holy Spirit, he gives us a joy in Christ, a joy in Christ that cannot be contained. It's like we, we talked about the kids coming up here and how joyful they were. That's how it, it could not be contained, the joy. A, a child on Christmas morning, that's what it's like. A joy that cannot be contained. And are we willing to, to show that type of joy about Christ? Are we willing to be a, a fool for Christ? Are we willing to risk people laughing at us, thinking that we're awkward for Christ? I love the story about King David when the, when the ark came to Jerusalem and how King David was willing to, to abandon and just dance before the ark. So much for that even his own wife thought he was undignified and, and, and held him in scorn and ridicule by his own wife. But he said, I have to, I, it's the ark, it's God. He, he could not contain himself. Are we like this? See, if we're controlled by the Holy Spirit, we will, just like Peter and John, we will not be able to not proclaim what God has done. We will not be able to not proclaim Christ, what he has done for us. So bold witness, this is a mark of a, a Holy Spirit-controlled life. But not only is there real spiritual power, there is also great grace. So what is grace? Well, grace is, is, is having God's undeserved and, and unmerited favor. Grace is not something we can earn. God, grace is not something we can deserve. It is not something we can presume upon. Grace solely is the result of God, it is a result of his magnificent and loving character. And it, it just overflows to us. His grace overflows and blesses us. And grace then fills us with joy, fills us with, with overwhelming joy. And this is the only effect that it can have upon us. When we see it, when we feel it, we cannot but 
bring us joyfully to praise God. It is natural. Again, like the, like the children come up here, how they were filled with joy. It is just a natural way we would be. Grace frees us from our addiction to self. That's the reason why we don't have the unity, because we are addicted to self. Grace frees us from this addiction to self and then allows us to focus our attention away from ourselves and on to God. And this grace changes our perspective. We see that God must increase and we must decrease. We have God's perspective. And we see the result of this great grace in verse 34. It says there was not a needy person among them. This is a really amazing statement. Think about it. Not a needy person among them. But can we even imagine that? We're praying about the brokenness that we see here. There is a lot of poverty even here in our own community. But they say there was no poverty. There was no financial need. And this is something that was almost completely unheard of in ancient times. In ancient times, poverty was the norm. It wasn't just a few people. Most people were in poverty. The vast majority of people lived at that subsistence level where starvation was a very real concern. But at this time, in this place, in the early church, there was not a needy person among them. That's amazing. So what does this mean? Well, this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament reading that Nathan read for us from Deuteronomy 15. It says, But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you. See, we're seeing a fulfillment of this promise in the disciples. And why are they seeing it? Because they listened to the voice of the Lord. Because they submitted to the Holy Spirit. So there was no poverty among the people. And in Deuteronomy, it actually spells out how this happens, how they can achieve no poverty. And in continuing in Deuteronomy 15, it says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within the land the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. See, God provides for the needs of his people through his people, through the blessing that he gives others of his people. And he allows us to participate with him in blessing others. And this is exactly the radical generosity that we see in the rest of verses 34 and 35 of Acts chapter 4. Starting at verse 34, it says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what they sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. See, this radical generosity, this is not normal. This is not natural. Even among Christians, it is a, a supernatural result of this great grace that the Holy Spirit poured upon them. And the disciples realized how much they were given by God, how much they were forgiven by God, how much grace they had received. And they could not not show the same grace to those who were in need around them. It was just a perfect, it, it, was, it was just the natural way that they would react. And they freely gave. They weren't compelled to give. They freely gave what they had knowing, knowing that they could not outgive God. They embodied, I, I, I love this hymn, they embodied the last verse of this hymn by Isaac Watts. It's, it's called, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. I'm sure you, you know this. Last verse says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what they were doing. They were giving everything they had. 
And understanding this reality, understanding this reality is we can't outgive God. Understand that it all comes from Him. Understand no matter how much we give, we get more back. Having this, having this kind of heart, this is evidence. This is evidence of a life that is under control of the Holy Spirit. This attitude can only be explained by a supernatural encounter with Christ. And if you are a Christian, if you are a new creation in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then this type of generosity is not only possible for all of us, it should be the norm. We have the Holy Spirit. We simply have to surrender to him in faith and allow him to control our lives. Now notice in verse 35, when the disciples sold the property, it says that they laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. In other words, they gave the money to the church. They trusted the apostles, the, the church leaders, to prayerfully distribute this money, led by the Holy Spirit, to those in need. They didn't give the money directly to those who had a need. And I think this is very significant for us, that they gave the money to the church and not directly to the needy. Because what it does is it identifies, I think, a, a subtle way that we can deceive ourselves. See, we may give, but we may give in a way where we maintain control over the, give, over, over the gift. We give in a way where we can achieve honor and, and glory from the gift. Or perhaps we give in a way to, to influence others, to main control, maintain control of, over others. We've, always heard, we've all heard of the expression, to give a gift with strings attached. And that's to give a gift with, with an ulterior motive, a motive to, to influence or control a person's behavior. But this is not what the disciples did. This is not how we are to give. We are to give primarily to the church. And we are to trust that the Holy Spirit will guide the church, guide the leaders of the church to use this money as, as the Holy Spirit sees fit, to distribute these funds to meet the needs of God's people. Now, I can, I can hear an objection that's probably you're raising in your minds, and it's an objection I would have as well. How can I trust the church, right? How can I know that they're going to use the, 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 the wealth wisely? I have to handle it myself. Right? We've all heard stories of extravagant and wasteful spendings of, of, of tithes by, by health and wealth preachers who have luxurious mansions and, and private jets and hold these wild parties. How can we trust that our money that we give to them will be wisely spent? Well, first, we must be discerning when joining a church. We must make sure that the leaders are, are godly and not shysters, not only in it for the money. And the sad, reality, the sad reality is there are many hucksters, many who, for them, religion is just a racket. It's just a way to get rich. They have skills. They're good speakers. Uh, they, can, they can influence people, and they use it to tell people what they want to hear and to get their monies. These false teachers don't really believe what they're teaching. It's all a show. Now, we must stay away from these people. And it's, it's much bigger danger than just wasting our money. These people preach a false gospel that cannot save, that is of no good, no use for us. So we must stay away from them. But if we are in a real church that preaches a real gospel with, with godly leaders that love the Lord and know the Lord and, and know that they are accountable to the Lord, know that they will tremble at the responsibility given to them, to these leaders know if they abuse this responsibility, they will answer to the Lord themselves. Now, as church members, we are accountable to the Lord to be obedient. We must trust that he will, will guide the church and, and use the tithes. And we must resist this urge to be autonomous and want us to keep control over what we give to the Lord. Finally, in verse 36, we are given an example. 
We're given an example of this type of Holy Spirit-controlled believer. And we see this in the generosity of Barnabas. Verse 36 says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And here we are introduced to Barnabas. And he's going to become one of the main figures in the book of Acts. And, and this act is also going to be contrasted what we look at next week. We're going to see the, the, the example of what, what is right and example of what is wrong we're going to see next week. But Barnabas is going to really be a, a main figure that we see in the book of Acts. See, Barnabas is the man who trusted Paul. Paul, when he was converted on the, Lord, on the, on the road to Damascus. Everyone else was leery of this man. This is the man who, who persecuted and arrested and killed Christians. But Barnabas stood up for Paul. He vouched for Paul. Later on in Acts, we see that Barnabas and Paul are actually set apart to be the first missionaries sent out by the church in Antioch to bring the gospel to the end of the earth, fulfilling Jesus' commission. In verse 36, we are told that Barnabas sold a field and gave the money to the church. Now, we don't know why he had this field. We don't know why he had any field. Because the text tells us that Barnabas was a Levite. Now, if you know your scripture, Levites were not supposed to own land. Remember the tribe of the Levites, they were different than the other 11 tribes of Israel. The other tribes were given by God a specific allocation of land that was to be their inheritance, but not so for the Levites. To the Levites, God himself was their inheritance. See, God provides for the needs of all his people. He provided for the needs of the 11 tribes through the produce of the land. He gave them land, and the land produces, and their main work of these 11 tribes was to, to work this land six days a week worked this land. On the seventh day, they rested and worshipped. But the main work of the Levites was not to work the land like the other 11, but it was to attend to the temple and the sacrificial system. That was their main work. Their main work was to focus on the things of God, on the law of God, and not only on their own behalf, but for the, on behalf of the other 12 tribes. And because the Levites did not have land to support themselves, they are in their living serving God's people in the temple, and they were supported by the tithe of the 12 other 12 tribes. But as we've seen in, in Scripture, we've seen this especially when we were studying Judges a, um, a year or so ago, the people had become disobedient, and the, the, the Levites neglected their duty. The Levites were indistinguishable from the other, other tribes. They weren't doing what they were supposed to do. They were not tending the temple. And either this was the disobedience of the Levites themselves, who refused this call, or it was the disobedience of the other 11 tribes who were not supporting the Levites. So the Levites had, were forced to go out and, and earn a living in other ways. Well, this may have been the case for Barnabas. This land may have been the way Barnabas supported his family. It may have been the only means of support that he had. And perhaps Barnabas felt conflicted by this because he felt that having this land and having income off this land was showing that he was not trusting God. Not trusting God to hold this by holding on to this land. And we see that Barnabas and Paul went off to be missionaries. And the Lord supported them as they were doing missionaries, either through tent making like Paul did or, or through the tithes and, and the support of others. But this radical generosity that we see demonstrated by Barnabas and others by selling their possession, this is not natural. And this is evidence of a supernatural transformation that comes only from an encounter with Christ. It's similar to like I was telling the children before. It's natural for me to love sweet cookies, but there was a, a change in me when I didn't like these, these Fig Newtons. That's the type of change it, it, they, where they, where they uh, disgusted me. Well, it's the same thing. This type of change is not natural. It is evidence of something that the Holy Spirit did. It was an encounter 
with the Holy Spirit. And this is what we saw in our gospel reading that Nathan read for us from the story of the tax collector Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He was very good at it. Now, if you know how the tax collecting worked in, in, in the Roman t- times, the Romans would find someone who knew the culture, who knew the, the people, knew how the people would, would hide their money. And they would use them basically to exploit the people. And the tax collectors, the more they exploited the people, the richer they got. But then Zacchaeus had this encounter with Christ, and it completely changed him. Zacchaeus pledges to give half of his wealth away. This was a man who was greedy, who was controlled by, by wealth. This is the whole reason why people became tax collectors, because you can get very wealthy, but you were despised by everyone. He gave half of it away, and he said he'd make restitution, give four times, which is more than was required by the law if he defrauded anyone. So Zacchaeus and Barnabas here are examples. They're examples of the freedom that's found in Christ, found when we submit to the Holy Spirit's control of our lives. So they didn't need to rely on themselves, whether it was land or whether it was money that they had. They didn't need to rely on themselves for the security and the provision. They relied on the Lord. And you see the freedom they had? As a result of this, they had a significant impact on the kingdom of God. But it's even more than that. Even more than that, they were filled with an incredible peace, an incredible joy. You see Barnabas, the son of encouragement, even hearing about Zacchaeus, he was joyfully singing and, and, and praising God. This is what happens when we are free from self and and controlled by the Holy Spirit, when we live for God and live for his glory. So our application today is simple. Our application is to follow this example. Our our application is to be encouraged by this example and to strive to to embody the characteristics that we see here, characteristics of a Holy Spirit-controlled life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as, as we look at these words as we look at this holy spirit controlled life it seems so difficult it seems like something that we cannot do on our own and that's absolutely true we cannot do on our own but lord we have the spirit in us already so father i pray for myself i pray for everyone who could hear me that we will surrender to the holy spirit we will not live safe calculated lives but we will live lives marked by extravagance by marked by trust in you, trust in your calling, and knowing that we cannot outgive you. And Lord, that you will set us free, set us free to the bondage that we have to self, bondage that we have to finding our security in ourselves and what we own and what we do and what we can do, but trust in who you are. That is where our ultimate and eternal security lies. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.